0: Y'all good? Everybody good? Good Enjoy your uh, uh, summertime in December? Uh, Because that's over. It's totally over. Happy New Year to everybody. It's the first Sunday of a new year. I'm delighted to to start another new year with this church family. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. I want to start a five-week series today entitled Lost. I simply want us to take some time and really think and really talk about what it means to have a life apart from Christ. To live outside of Christ, we call that lost. So let's talk about that. The word lost itself is a very common word for us. We use it in everyday conversation. I lost my keys, I took a wrong turn in Louisville and ended up lost in Iroquois Park. Lost, we, we just use that word. But understand, in the New Testament, it's Jesus himself who takes that ordinary word and begins to use it in a, in a way that applies particularly to our spiritual lives. It's Jesus who defined his entire purpose in terms of saying, I have come to seek and to save the lost. It's Jesus who spent an afternoon preaching and rolled out three stories in a row that had to do with lostness. A lost sheep, a lost coin, a lost son. Jesus used this word lost to describe the lives of people, the existence of people outside of him. And I think that's interesting. I want us to consider what it means to be lost. I was flying. I don't remember where I was going. I just remember that I had like a six-hour layover in Philadelphia and I had to change airlines. So I had to uncheck my bag and wait six hours. It was a gorgeous day and I don't sit well. So I decided that I was going to go out and explore Philadelphia with my rolling suitcase and my backpack, you know. And so I don't know a lot about Philadelphia. I know that there's some, you know, American history there that, that I might want to see. But I also remembered that the movie Rocky, the first movie Rocky, was filmed in Philadelphia. And I remember that scene, you know, where Rocky's tearing, he's just running down that street, and he ends up running up those steps and, you know, standing up there, you know, doing that. I wanted to do that. So I had read, I knew that that scene took place at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. I didn't really know where that was, but I had six hours to get there. So I went over to the desk in the airport. There was a man standing there. I said, listen, can you tell me where the Philadelphia Museum of Art is? And the man said, it's uh, several miles north. And I said, can I walk there? And the man said, I wouldn't. That's all he said, I wouldn't. But I accepted that as a challenge, you understand, because he's not me, I'm me, and I I thought, yeah, I got six hours, and I'm going to do this. So I set out walking north in Philadelphia with a rolling suitcase and a backpack. Now, my wife will tell you, I have, it's probably some sort of psychosis, because even if I don't know where I'm going, I think I do. And this is what kicked in in Philadelphia this day. No idea where I'm going, but I just still walk with such speed and confidence. This was before GPS, so looking at my phone and finding directions, none of that's an option. I don't have a map. But who needs a map? I'm in Philadelphia, and the man said north. So I'm walking. I walk forever. I walk probably a couple of hours. I don't think about it. I don't care. It's a beautiful day. I'll get there eventually. As I'm walking, for the longest time, it's almost like a scene from Rocky. It is. I could look around, and it felt like a scene from Rocky, except the longer I walked, it started looking more like a scene from that movie, Village of the Damned. Have y'all seen that movie? Because it started feeling more like Village of the Damned, and and it, uh, it, it didn't look like anything anymore, So I, I was, but still, I'm walking, just walking, walking, you know. About this time, this guy pulls up in a car next to me and lowers his window, and he just shouts out the window at me. He says, you're lost. Like, that's just what he says. You're lost. Okay, I respond to him like I'm still in Woodburn, like somebody just said good morning. I just sort of go, like, wave, you know, with my rolling suitcase and my backpack. I'm just like, you know, yeah. He said, no, you're lost. And I said, what, what do you mean? He said, I don't know where you're going but you're lost. He said, you cannot walk in this neighborhood rolling a suitcase. This is not gonna be good for you. This is what this man is telling me. He said, you've got to turn around and go back where you came from, you're lost. Now, I had not felt lost. Apparently I looked lost. But until that moment, I really had not thought of myself as lost at all. I did turn around. I walked back to the airport. It ended up taking all of six hours. Um, Lost. Lost. What exactly does that mean? Again, Jesus is the one who teaches us to think of ourselves, to think of people, to think of a spiritual life as a life in lostness. What does that mean? The word lost typically means misplaced, out of place. The word lost can mean having, having stepped off the path you know, uh, following the wrong directions. In the hymn Amazing Grace, we sing those words, I once was lost, but now I'm found. So we understand that the gospel itself uses this language, this language of lostness to express something of the good news, right? That in Christ, the lost get found. But but please recognize that before the news is good, before the gospel itself is good news, there is bad news that you have to hear, and that is just simply the news that you are lost. You're lost. You may not feel lost. You may not have ever thought of yourself as lost, but if you have not yet had your life found by Christ, you're lost. You're lost. That means that you must somehow turn around and go back to where you came from. That means that no matter where you think you're going, the road you're walking is never going to take you there. You're lost. Lostness is indeed the normal state of existence for every person who's ever lived. Lost. The world whole world is lost without Christ. So, so how did we get this way? If this is the normal state of existence for every human, how did we become so lost? With that, we'll turn to Genesis chapter 3 and uh, jump into what is the oldest story in the book, right? Genesis chapter 3, we're going to pick up at the end of the story of our first parents, Adam and Eve, and we'll start at the end of that story. Chapter 3, verse 22, y'all ready? Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. Then the Lord God said, look, the human beings have become like us, knowing both good and evil. What if they reach out, take fruit from the tree of life, and eat it? Then they will live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden, and he sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. After sending them out, the Lord God stationed mighty cherubim to the east of the Garden of Eden, and he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. I I called them our first parents. Do you ever think of it that way? Adam and Eve are the parents of all the living. They're the parents of the human race, right? So these are our first parents. This is the story of our parents, our our first parents. If you know the story at all, you know that it's a, it's a very important before and after story. There's the before, and then there's something that happens that changes everything, and then there's the after. This is the beginning of the after part right here, but, but you remember the before, right? Adam and Eve, their life before sin, their life before the fall, It was a life in paradise. Adam and Eve were created perfectly by the God who made them. God knelt down from the dust of the ground and made Adam and and breathed into his nostrils. and, And that man became a living soul. So, so we're not just other animals There's something distinctive about the man and the woman. We're created in the very image of God with his breath in our lungs. We ourselves are, are living souls. We have a spiritual dimension that sets us apart from everything else. Adam and Eve, with that spiritual dimension, were created for fellowship with this great God. And so life for them was a life of closeness and unity with the very God who made them, the very God uh, who breathed his breath into their lungs. Adam and Eve lived these lives with no disappointment, no frustration, no sickness, no sorrow, no sadness, nothing in all of the garden to hurt Or to harm them. That just means that Adam every single day would get up in the morning and he would put jelly on his toast for breakfast. And if he dropped his toast, his toast always landed jelly side up. Because that's how it was in the Garden of Eden. Everything is perfect. There's no disappointment. Adam and Eve had perfect fellowship with God. They had perfect fellowship with one another. They had the perfect marriage Eve never wore a shower cap. She never wore like one of those granny nightgowns from Cracker Barrel. It was a beautiful marriage. Everything is exactly as God intended it. And our first parents lived in this garden of paradise, perfection in the very presence of God. That's the before, right? So if they're allowed to live with such perfection, there's got to be a catch. And there's always a catch, right? Okay, there was no catch. In the Garden of Eden, there is no cats. They are allowed to simply walk in the very presence of God. Scripture says in the afternoon, God would come and sit on their porch in the cool of the sunset like a neighbor. You understand? This is what they enjoy with the Lord God. There's no cats, but there are limits. There are limits. Scripture says that the Lord God set apart two trees in the garden as special, two. Two trees that were special. One is called the tree of life. And the tree of life was made available and and, and freely shared with the man and the woman. There was no uh, prohibition here. The tree of life was there for them. It was food for them. This was that tree that allowed them to eat and live eternally. Because that was God's plan, right? That they could live, dwell eternally. There's no death, there's no sickness, there's no sorrow. It's just living forever in the very presence and perfect holiness of God. The tree of life is there, and it's freely shared with them. But there's the other tree. It's the tree of knowledge, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And that one tree, out of all the trees, out of everything God had made, there's only one thing that God said, this is not for you. Understand? One tree, only one tree that is forbidden. Now, I, I, I kind of want to stop right here. Because as I talk to people in the world, lost people in the world, I think often there's this this misunderstanding of what God is like. Sometimes even church people will think of God as this God who somehow, one way or the other, he's going to take good things away from you. This is a God who's going to call you to do something terrible. This is a God who's somehow going to move your life in a way that's going to make you less happy. This is a God who is a God of thou shalt not and, and thou must never, a God of no, a God of eternal anger. I mean, this is the way a lot of people think of God. And apparently, if you think of God that way, you haven't read the Bible. You haven't read Genesis. This God who creates everything, he creates it beautifully and perfect, perfectly, and he just simply gives it all to the man and woman. It's all theirs. It's all for us. Except the one tree. That's it. Only one thing which is set somehow beyond their freedom, right? And God had said, if, if you were to eat of the fruit of that tree, you will die. So what happens? Well, do y'all know people? We may be talking about the first people, but they're still people. And so, if you have an entire garden of wonderful things, all the best fruit, all the best everything, you got, you got the whole world that, that, that's yours freely, and only one thing that's, that, that you've been told no to, what is it that becomes the focus of your attention? It's the one thing. And, and so, Adam and Eve, you know, you know the story, you know the serpent's help, the temptation of the serpent and all of that. One way or the other, Adam and Eve end up right there at that tree, eating that fruit. We call that sin. We we call that the fall. This is the moment when everything changes for Adam and Eve, for our parents, and it has to do with sin. So, So what is sin? If you just take it from this story, basically I could define it first as just disobedience. Sin is disobedience to God's command. Sin is that unwillingness to listen to the voice of God. God said, this one tree you must not take, and that's exactly what they went for. They were unwilling to recognize his authority to command their lives. The garden was his, the trees were his, they were his, the breath in their lungs is his, but somehow they still don't think he should be able to tell them what to do. You understand? So sin is disobedience to God's command. That's what sin was for Adam and Eve. That's what sin is for you. It's just disobedience, this unwillingness to yield to his authority. But I would also say it this way. Sin is the refusal to live within the limits God has set. Understand, God said you can have all of this, just don't cross this line right here. God gives us freedom within boundaries, within limits. And sin is that human refusal. Something about us, we don't like limits. Limits. We don't like to be told no. We don't like to have anything set outside our our reach. And, and, And this is that very inclination towards sin. Sin is that refusal to live within the limits God has set. And understand, it has consequences. Sin has consequences. God said from the beginning, you must not eat of the fruit of this tree. Because if you do, you will die. Now, I remember hearing this story as a kid and being puzzled by that. Because, you know, when I hear him say, you're gonna eat that and you're gonna die, I just sort of expect that they're gonna eat that, and then in the next, you know, in the next scene, you know, Adam and Eve like, you know, are dead, like fall over dead in the story. But that's not how it plays out. It's always a little bit puzzled how it seems like they eat the fruit, but they don't die, at least not right away. That's what you need to understand. It has consequences. There are physical and there are spiritual consequences to sin. Because Adam and Eve are unique in all of creation. They're not just physical beings. Spiritual beings. It's not just that they were created from the dust of the ground. They were created and then God breathes into Adam his own breath. He becomes a living soul. Understand? There's a quality of our lives, a dimension to our existence that nothing else in all of creation owns. It's, it's the spiritual dimension. And so the consequences are not just physical. Yes, Adam and Eve do die. It takes a while. The physical consequences of sin seem to play out longer. They begin to age. They experience sickness and sorrow and sadness. And that physical death takes longer. But the spiritual consequences are Instantaneous. Do you see that? Instantly, while they're still in the garden, something happens when they sin. There is an immediate separation from the God who made them. Prior to that, they were able to enjoy his company, to be in his presence, to be in the presence of his holiness. And they could just walk with him like friends, like like neighbors. But the moment sin enters the picture, they are now repulsed by his presence, repulsed by the very God who who made them. Now they hide from his presence. They experience shame in his presence. There is a rupture. There is an alienation now that they never knew. But now it's all they will know. Alienation from God. Sin breaks that relationship with God. It separates us. But it's not just an alienation from God. Something happens to Adam and Eve. I mean, prior to sin, they enjoyed this harmony, this relationship. They had the perfect marriage, right? I mean, if, if you know the story, you know that when God first brings Eve to Adam, Adam sings. Like the world's first love song, Adam literally sings, at last, he does. He says, at last, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. I mean, Adam loves it. I mean, love at first sight. He sees this woman and he's all, at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. And then once Adam sins, What's Next time he's talking about Eve, does he call her bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh? After sin, next time he talks about her, he calls her that woman. I mean, she used to be bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Now she's just that woman. God said, did you eat from the tree I told you not to eat? And God said, well, that woman, you know, she made it for breakfast and I guess I ate it. But it was that woman that you gave me. I mean, understand, there's this severance, this brokenness, this shattering of the relationship between the man and the woman, these are the spiritual consequences of sin, make no mistake, the consequences are exactly as God had promised, that there is death, there's spiritual death, there's physical death, the spiritual death happens instantaneously, the physical death plays out over time, but but now death is all they know, all they will know. Scripture says the wages of sin is death. So when, when did this happen? Like that's the question some people love to get all, all up in. You know, when did, the, when did this happen? I mean, there are those who would love to take the Bible and assign dates, and they, they can tell you what year or how many, exactly how many years ago this happened. I, I, I don't know. I do fully believe in the book of Genesis. The hope, I mean, the Bible is God's word, it's God's perfect word. I, I trust it as, as history. I know this is the, the way that, that God created. I know this is how it happened. I know this is how the human family started. I know this is how we fell. Um, I just don't know how long ago. I, I'm just comfortable saying eons. Uh, This happened eons ago. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, they sinned. They turned away from God. They refused to live within the boundaries that he set. And so our first parents, this story happened eons ago. It also happened this morning. It's still happening. You know what I mean by this? I I would say it's still happening because you are the Adam of your own soul. You are Eve. That's what I mean? I'm saying this is a true story. This is exactly, this is historical truth. This is the story of Adam and Eve. And this is how sin came into the world and how sin came into their lives. But you need to understand, it's not just Adam's story. It's not just Eve's story. This is your story. You have lived this. This is you. And that same lostness that that took over for Adam and Eve, that same lostness that separated them from the God who made them, that lostness is something that you have always known. You have been lost. And if you don't know Christ, you are lost. It's your story too. That's why I say it happened eons ago, and it just keeps on happening. It's still happening because there are still men and women all over the place, and they still do exactly what the first parents did. We sin, and sin has consequences. And the life that exists on the other side of that, apart from Christ, that's what we call lostness, lost. Psalm 51, verse 5, is interesting. It says this. Uh, It's that psalm where... David is confessing his sin. It's a great penitential psalm, we call it. And in verse 5, he says this I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me, I was born a sinner. Let that sink in. What does that mean? Because honestly, this verse and the way people have interpreted it through the centuries has made a big difference. And, And the way you understand this verse, the way we understand this verse as a congregation, this makes a difference in our life together, especially in the way we disciple our children. And I want you to consider that. Throughout Christian history, there's been a very important doctrine called the doctrine of original sin. Anybody ever heard of that? You heard original sin? Original sin is just that way that we talk about that first sin, the original sin of of Adam and Eve. Now, all of Scripture makes perfectly clear that you can draw a straight line from Adam's sin to my sin. They're connected. And you can draw a straight line from Adam and Eve's sin and your sin. It's connected. You have to understand that it's connected. That Adam's sin, Eve's sin, that that, that choice that they have made, that that sin that they brought into the world, that affects me, that affects you. The psalmist says, I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. What exactly does this mean? And, And in what way does Adam's sin affect me? This is actually very important. Uh, For many, many religious groups, for many denominations through the centuries, this doctrine of original sin has really uh, impacted the way they thought of people coming into salvation and and the very way they uh, would share the gospel. It has to do with this. This idea that every human child is born a sinner. What does that mean? What does it mean? For some, it it means that they inherit Adam's sin, that somehow sin is passed on, whether it's in our DNA or somehow in in our spiritual makeup, that we inherit the very sin of our first parents. We inherit their sin. I guess I could say that. I I might say that. But but Christians have often gone further than that and, and gone on to say that it's not just we inherit Adam's sin. They have said that we inherit his guilt. So they would read this verse and say, I was born a sinner, which which some would say that means that any baby born is already born condemned. They're a sinner. They're a sinner not because they have sinned yet, but because they're born in sin, because they're born in a world of sinners, because sin is somehow now a part of the human family. You can't escape it. And if you're born human, you're born guilty. Now, I'll just say, that's not what I believe. And I want you to understand that that's not what Baptists have taught. Now, I'm not one of those people that says, Baptists the only ones going to heaven. I don't believe that. And I'm not a person that likes to find fault with other denominations or other groups. If they're preaching Jesus, let them go. Let them preach Jesus. But I want you to understand why we do what we do. And, and, and you may decide not to agree with me, but at least understand why we do what we do. Now when I say that other groups that they believe that babies literally inherit the guilt of sin I mean that. There are those that believe that a baby born is already a sinner and already condemned to hell. For example in a a Roman Catholic hospital to this day if a baby is born and it doesn't look like it's going to survive the nuns will rush and baptize that baby in the hospital. They got to baptize that baby because they believe that that baby has to be baptized. They believe, among other things, that the baptism washes away that stain of original sin. They're removing that guilt through baptism. Now, other groups also baptize their infants, and they may explain it or do it with with slightly different reasons, but it typically comes back to that, to original sin, to the idea that a baby is born with this guilt that needs to be washed away, that can be washed away in baptism. Now, this is where Baptists come from. The story is long and complicated, but just understand, we're called Anabaptists because this is what... Uh, this is the line that we drew. We, we looked at this situation with infant baptism, and that just didn't make sense to us. The idea, first off, that, that baptism could save you. Man, if I thought that water could save any of you, if I'd get y'all to walk close to it, and I'd push you in. I would just, I'm not kidding you. If I really thought that water would save you just by you getting in it, I'd push you in. If I thought that water would save babies from hell, y'all, I, I'd, I'd be we bring them out of the nursery right now and, we, and we'd be just be washing them right through there. I, I don't really think that water is what saves. I don't think baptism is what saves. I, I think it's faith in Christ that that saves a person. And an infant is incapable of expressing faith in Christ. On top of that, Baptists have typically believed that an infant an, an infant is not fully capable of sin. Now, they catch on pretty quick. I'll I'll say that. I have have senior children in the hall. I mean, they catch on. We all catch on real quickly. But a baby? Now, I will agree that a baby is born with that, man, human nature, man, that sinful nature. We have an inclination towards sin. You know that. but, But a newborn baby? can't possibly know right from wrong. For the longest time, they don't even know that they're making choices at all. How can they be accountable for a moral choice? I mean, how could God condemn an an innocent child when they have no ability to to know right from wrong, to know that they are refusing his boundaries, even know that there are boundaries? You know what I'm saying? So Baptists have typically said that, that children are born under grace. It's the kind of language we use. There is this sort of grace that that covers a child. When Jesus said, Let the children come to me, it's that expression of acceptance because children don't quite know. They, they can't quite choose, but but they will. We call that the age of accountability. There's a point where as a child grows up, that they reach that ability, that that responsibility, that 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 capacity to to understand that that there is a God who has some claim upon their lives. That that may happen earlier for some children, later for others. We don't set an age. So all I'm saying is, um, when we say that children are born sinners, we don't believe as Baptists that children are born with the guilt of sin. We do believe that they're born into a world of sinners and with an inclination towards sin. I would say that when you were born, you may have been born under grace, but you were born into a world where you drank from a poisoned well, you know, your sinfulness was an inevitability. Um, I would say it this way, we don't baptize our babies because we don't believe you can be guilty of the sins of somebody else. Now, the Bible draws a straight line from my sin to Adam's sin, but I don't think it draws a straight line to Adam's guilt. You understand? In the Old Testament, it says over and over, the soul that sins, it shall die. The soul that sins, it shall die. I can't be held responsible for another person's sin, another person's choice. Now, I can suffer the consequences for my parents' sin. You can suffer consequences of the sins of the world. But I do believe that we are accountable for our own choices, accountable for only our own sins. So again, basically, we don't baptize babies. We don't believe you can be guilty of the sins of somebody else. But now, let's talk about you for a minute. You were born a baby, right? Born under grace. You may not have inherited Adam's guilt, but you inherited his orientation towards sin. I would say it this way. You stepped from the path the moment you could know there was a path. So the very moment that you first began to understand that there is the truth and there's a lie, in that moment, you became a liar. You, like, you could have gone both ways, but you went toward the sin, and that's human nature. And the moment that you can understand, you know, it's probably wrong to take this Tonkin truck and and whack my sister over the head like you were thinking this is probably wrong, but it's gonna feel so good. Why, you know? Like that's what we do. In the moment when you begin to understand, there's a path. There's right and there's wrong. There's a God with a claim upon my life. There are there are, are choices I make that have consequences. I'm telling you in that moment. In that very moment, when you become aware, in that moment, you, you step off the path. The moment you're capable of recognizing sin, you choose sin. You step from the path the moment you could know there was a path, and you've been lost ever since. Does that make sense? Is that a lie? You've been lost ever since. So what happens? What happens next? It's where the Genesis story is just so interesting. Lord God said, look, the human beings have become like us, knowing both good and evil. What if they reach out, take fruit from the tree of life and eat it? Then they will live forever. So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden, and he sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. And after sending them out, the Lord God stationed mighty cherubim to the east of the Garden of Eden, and he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. This is severe action on God's part. Why does he do this? Is this a blessing? Is this a curse? Is this punishment? I think it's complicated. They've already ruined their existence. The the relationship with God is is severed. The relationship with one another is severed. Now Eve will bear children in in pain. Uh, Adam will work the ground, but it will only produce thorns and and thistles. I mean, they've ruined what what they have ruined. God banishes them from the garden. What's that about? Notice what God says. Notice what God says. If they eat from the fruit of the tree of life, They'll live forever. But was that not the plan? Wasn't that the plan? That they would live forever? There in the garden? I mean, isn't that the plan? Yes, that's the plan. But it was never the plan that they would live forever in lostness was never the plan that they would live their lives in futility and meaninglessness, that they would be disappointed and frustrated, that they would suffer sickness and, and, and that they would, they would suffer sadness, that they would be alienated and separated, and they would have to live that miserable life forever. This is, God's, this, this is God's action here, and this is why he does what he does. He cannot allow the human family to live forever in lostness. It's the tree of life that is guarded. It's the access to the eternal life that is now removed from us. Because God cannot bear to allow us to live forever separated from him. So in a lot of ways, this is the story of all the stories. Everything that follows in the Bible goes right back to here. I mean, everything that pours out is simply God's way through Jesus of bringing us back. I mean, why does he banish the human family from the garden? Why does he banish us from the tree of life? For the simple reason that through Christ, he wants to bring us back. He wants to bring us back into fellowship, bring us back into paradise, bring us back into relationship through Jesus. So when we sing, you know, I, I once was lost, but now I'm found. When I say those words, I'm telling you a story about myself. I'm telling you a story about Jesus. Because it's not just Adam and Eve that have this before and after story. My life is a before and after story. Before I met Jesus and after I met Jesus, I, I once was lost. Now I'm found. I just need you to understand. That before the gospel's good news, there's bad news that you must understand. You may not feel it. You may not see yourself this way. But you're lost. If you don't know Christ, you're lost. This is not going to go well for you. I don't know where you think you're going, but the road that you're on will never take you there. You must turn around and go back where you came from. You're lost. Pray with me.